This episode contains graphic accounts of domestic and sexual violence, violence against women in particular, and language that is not suitable for listeners under 18 years of age. Other themes that you may hear in the following episode deal with suicide and addiction. Please use caution when listening. Before we begin this week's episode, we have a few items and corrections to address from the first three episodes we released. First, we incorrectly stated that Jim's mother, Pat, had the maiden name O'Donnell. It was actually Brown. We also learned that Jim attended Christian Academy, a private Christian school, for a period of time that allowed him to advance his grade level by the time he returned to Cleveland Public Schools. He actually graduated as a senior at age 16. Finally, we've heard from some people who were at the high school at this time that Don and Jim were not really high school sweethearts but they did end up having a son and getting married. We also want to make it clear that the two women who shared the conversations Jim had with them about necrophilia were doing just that, sharing topics of discussion that Jim brought up. No one has ever come forward to allege that Jim actually did have sex with a dead body and that they have some proof. As Colleen and I stated in episode three, we have no opinion on whether or not he ever committed necrophilia, and we would rather not think about it. Now on to our regularly scheduled episode. And he also, you didn't want to be like the others. You wanted to be in the beginning was, his big thing was, he wanted... You wanted to be his unicorn, <laughs> like he had this. He, he the, one of the first things he asked me was, "Are you my unicorn?" And he, for some reason, you wanted to be his fucking unicorn. You wanted to be that cool girl that could hang out and be cool and watch him do his millionaire business deals. You know, you wanted to be that that girl. Last week, we told you about Jim's professional life and a little bit about what was going on in his life while he was also simultaneously physically and sexually abusing numerous victims. This week, it's all about the love, baby. Anyone who's ever fallen in love will tell you that falling in love can depend a lot on where you are in life and what you've gone through and how you perceive yourself. Sure, it matters a lot what the other person is like if you're attracted to them and how you interact together. But if you're in a particularly emotional or vulnerable place in your life, like if you've just had a painful breakup or a divorce, or if you've just lost someone, falling in love can make you vulnerable. Or if you've had a traumatic childhood, if you were abused or belittled as a child, or if you have particular insecurities about your body because people teased you, each of these things, which happen to almost everyone, can create the basis for future relationships. If you're in a healthy relationship, you can fall in love with someone who creates a healthy attachment. And that person can actually help you heal your past emotional wounds. You can become the best version of yourself when you fall in love with a healthy person. But when you fall in love with someone who is also hurt and damaged, or worse, someone who is actively cruel and pathological, they can use your pain and vulnerabilities against you. One of the questions we've had over and over again as we research this story is how someone like Jim Lumen can get so many smart, dynamic, professional women to fall in love with him and continue being hurt by him. His victims are lawyers, 
artists, realtors, nurses, and musicians. At the time I met Jim Lumen, I was working as a piano teacher um, for a music company and also as a graphic designer for that same music company. And um, he, I was teaching adult beginner recreational piano lessons, um, and I absolutely adored my job. I have been a nurse for 25 long years. I am a nurse practitioner. I currently practice as a family nurse practitioner. I work in my own practice and have my own established group of patients that I care for. Um, occasionally I fill in at the walk-in clinic and handle more acute situations, um, and then very infrequently, but I still do continue to work in the emergency room setting and Great. care for patients in that capacity. I am a licensed real estate agent in the state of Oklahoma. Um, I help people buy and sell homes and land, uh, and I enjoy that greatly. So, um, in 2009, 2010, I was a 911 dispatcher. Um, after that, I worked in the medical field um, as a medical assistant. And when I met Jim, I was working for a chiropractor. These kinds of professions are taxing. They require empathy, technical knowledge, and hustle. Most of us probably have some stereotype of a domestic violence victim in our mind, if we sat and thought about who we think these crimes happen to. Maybe your own preconceived notions make you think it's generally something that happens to people living in poverty or people addicted to drugs. But we know the statistics show that is not true, and Jim's victims bear that out. They have a wide range of socioeconomic statuses. Some are multi-degree professionals, and some are high school graduates. But all of them found themselves in abusive circumstances, thanks to Jim. And here's where we're going to break the fourth wall for a minute. This kind of story is very difficult to tell. There are so many victims, so many tragedies, both great and small, that weave in and out of so many people's lives. If we told you all of them in succession, you would begin to get desensitized and it would feel repetitive. So what we've decided to do is tell you each of the phases of Jim's relationships through all of his victims' words. We want you to feel what they felt and understand their journeys into their relationships with him. This week's episode details falling in love with Jim over and over and over in almost the exact same way. Welcome to Panic Button, Operation Wildfire. This is episode four, Not Hard to Fall in Love. I'm Leslie Briggs. And I'm Colleen McCarty. The best place to start is at the beginning. Jim usually meets his victims online, either on an online dating site like Plenty of Fish or on Facebook. He always uses messaging on platforms like this to flirt and arrange a meeting. For one of his victims, he knew her from his hometown. This is Kristen talking about how Jim came back into her life. Where my sister-in-law invited Jim to my brother's 40th birthday party because they were on, you know, were friends and played football together or whatever. So at that time he was dating uh, Krista. He brought her to the party at my brother's. After the party, Jim posted to Facebook one night asking people to meet him at a local bar in Sand Springs called Torchies. And he was on Facebook talking about, you know, everybody's here. There's some kind of, maybe it was his divorce party or something like that. Um, and it, it, I was under the impression, like, there were a lot of our mutual friends there. <laughs> but I get there and it's just him. And I can't remember the girl's name now. 
Nikki, maybe, that he was there with. And um, then as soon as I walk in, she says, well, I guess this is who you're waiting for, and then leaves. Um, we uh, had a few drinks and then went driving around uh, Sand Springs, back roads, and talked and watched the sun come up or whatever. And he uh, was trying to encourage me to, hey, let's go to Dallas for the weekend, just like all of a sudden, you know. Another one of Jim's victims, Kara, received a random message from him one day about her side business, pumpkinbrains.com. Kara is an incredibly skilled pumpkin carving artist, and she has carved pumpkins for OU football coach Bob Stoops, Pee Wee Herman, and even one for William Shatner. So pumpkinbrains.com is kind of a big deal. And then I met Jim Lumen. I met him on Facebook. He found me on Facebook where he, um, my, my niece and his son went to school together. So we had something in common kind of thing. And he was really um, so confident and so cocky that I liked it. And I'm not used to people like talking to me like they own the place, you know. And I liked that. Um, but I also was kind of put off by him. And I was kind of weary of him at first as well. Um, but we talked for about a week before our first date. I'm also a professional pumpkin carver. Um, you can see my work at pumpkinbrains.com. No, um, I am a professional pumpkin carver, and um, yes, that is a thing. Um, I've I've been car- I've carved pumpkins for Comic Con. I have carved William Shatner for William Shatner. That was one of my cooler ones. Um, Pee Wee Herman, actually, I've carved Pee Wee Herman once on a pumpkin, entered it in a contest for TMZ. Pee Wee Herman ended up, like, getting all of his followers to vote for me, and I won the contest because of Pee Wee Herman. And then he kind of became my, like, weird online friend, and it's, my pumpkins have gotten me in weird situations, (laughs) including Jim Lumen. Jim Lumen actually... He was all about my my pumpkins. They're all about my gourds, y'all. I, I know that he was really big into my pumpkins at first and, and was was like, oh my gosh, we can you can sell these everywhere. And I found out later on he was taking pictures of my pumpkins and telling women that he was carving them. Like literally, like <laughs> I can't make this. I carved Bob Stoops on a pumpkin. And he sent it into OU and said he did it. That was one fun thing, yeah. And everyone, they're like, thanks, Jim Lumen, for sending this in. I'm like, it was me, but okay. Heather, a more recent one of Jim's victims who went on to marry him in 2016, met him on a dating site called Plenty of Fish. So I was coming out of a 20-year marriage. Um, didn't really know how to do this dating thing and ended up on the dating site Plenty of Fish. Um, came across Jim's profile and just started talking to him through there. Um, I was kind of seeing somebody else at the time, um, but that really wasn't going to go anywhere. And I figured that I thoroughly enjoyed the aspect of being a wife. Um, not that I was quick to to jump on that wagon per se, but um, 
I liked that role in my life and I wanted somebody who wanted a wife down the line and Jim kind of took that and ran with it once he figured that out. There's nothing inherently nefarious about meeting someone online, especially if you're dating and you want to meet people. It's one of the easiest ways to find new people. Here's Heather again talking about one of Jim's favorite things to do with a new flame. So it was, he lived in an apartment in Hubbard, Iowa, and it's just outside of Hubbard. Um, It's this little gravel circle and it's literally like the same, probably five, six mile trip. And it's just in the middle of nowhere. It's kind of an Iowa thing. We got nothing else to do up here, but drive around, look at stuff. (laughs) And he, he really likes deer. So the route that we would take is just covered in deer. Like we would go out a lot of times at night and just count how many deer we could see. This, this is the struggle for me because Jim was so kind and so loving and in a way doting but yet you could tell that he was hurt like he was hurting inside and he was longing to be loved so it was like this big strong attorney that you know people can't ever love because he's such a mean person and he just wanted somebody to love him so to drive around in circles essentially and listen to Eric Church and just feel the wind and just talk and giggle. And, you know, this big strong guy will sit beside you and sing some corny song in the worst voice ever that you've heard. He's not a hard guy to fall in love with at all. And Kristen. So Emporia, Kansas was just another, like I picked him up from his mom's house and uh, we had no like reservations or plans or anything. And it was uh, pick him up and then take him to go get beer. And then up Highway 99, we went into Kansas. We had a whole list of songs and uh, uh, song lists for different things. Um, but he, you know, there was a song called Jolene by uh, Ray Lim. Oh, Ray Lamonte. Yeah, I love like that one. And I would sing sometimes, and he, you know, liked for me to sing. And um, got, he told me that he was a, that he managed a band or helped, like, co-write a song. But, yeah, he had his certain, you know, set song lists and stuff like that, but that was important to him. Sometimes he would bring even, like, a USB speaker thing to uh to play it better wherever we were going. Kara also got to experience the thrill of driving with no real schedule or destination in mind. So he, um, we ended up, he's like, let's just go drive around. We'll, I'll go, we'll go, I'll go show you some stuff. So we end up driving to his hometown area and he takes me to a place called Frog Rock which is this um, big rock that looks like a frog. I know, it's a surprise. Um, but it's a, it's a big green rock. But he, he eventually took me to another place, and I think it was called Sandy Point. Um, it was just this little beach area that he took me to. Then he took me to a place called Boston Pool Road, 
um, we were going to go to my mom's house and see, we were going to go stay the night at my parents' house because um, my, my parents actually had a, a big, nice house they just built um, kind of close to where he lived, where, or kind of close to where his mom lived. And um, my mom was dying of Alzheimer's and we were like, let's just go see her while we're out. And he's like, okay, that's fine. But first let's go do some, a couple more things. So we went to Boston Pool Road where he showed, we, we, it's basically this eight mile road where you drive around in a circle and he drinks beer. We only went around three, three times and then he wanted to show me where his sister lived. And so one thing at Boston Pool Road that he did point out to me was this place that he wanted to buy was right across like this body of water from my where my mom lived. And like this place that he wanted to buy was a stone's throw from where my dying mother was. And so I'm like, he wants to live out here by my mom, you know? I mean, that was something also that I was like, yeah. So you're hearing something that's important for a number of reasons. One is because these folks live in very rural areas in both Oklahoma and Iowa. Something rural places all have in common is there's not a lot to do. In a more urban area, you might go to a park or a bar or a restaurant or a gym or go to an event that's happening nearby. On any one evening in Cleveland or Sepulpa, Oklahoma, there just isn't a lot to do. Plus, driving has become one of the common threads of living in a rural community. Anyone based in a rural town has to get really comfortable spending hours in the car. There's something else interesting about spending so much time in the car with someone you don't know very much about. After looking into this a little, I believe there is a method to this. Being in a car with someone is a fast way to create intimacy. You're physically proximate, but you don't have to look into each other's eyes. You share a destination and are prone to reveal things about yourself in a long drive conversation that you might not if the date were in a restaurant or coffee shop. Here's the thing about my theory. It seems to bear fruit for Jim. His partners start to feel some type of way about him really fast. It was very, you know, um, 
the familiarity of him knowing as many people that I know and uh, a lot of history of, uh, you know, th things that are funny, like teachers that we knew and, you know, but it, it was very captivating um, and familiar to, to be with him during that time. And of course he's telling me all these things like uh, uh, that he's doing all these things where he's successful in business. And I think at that time he had just sold gripeofme.com or something like that. And he showed me something about the, the news did a segment on him selling that or whatever. And, um, and then he had like, I think it was beloved voices he had going on where it was just something about what was going on. He had, he had something going on in his mind all the time. So it, it wasn't a boring conversation, I guess is all was always there, you know, for that first, probably four to six weeks that we talked, I, I would come up after the kids would either go to bed or there were no kids there. So it was usually like 10 o'clock at night. So I'd go up and I would spend good three days just wrapped up with him in bed. Like we'd just be in bed for three days. He'd wake up, he'd go make me something for breakfast. He'd bring it into me. We'd lay there and talk and just cuddle. And it was just something just out of this world. Intrigued by him. And, um, when we kissed, it felt like, you know, it was passionate. And I'd been in a marriage where I was responsible for all the finances. Every decision that ever had to be made was mine. And suddenly I have this man who's cooking for me, who's saying, hey, pack a bag. We're going to go for a trip this weekend. Like, like, and he's a lawyer, so he makes money. So I had all this security in one man. And then it just derailed. By all accounts, Jim makes the women in his life feel comfortable and listened to. Here's his most recent wife, Marcy. I felt comfortable. Um, he had shared some of his trauma with me. Mm. So, you know, it was just a conversation. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I felt very comfortable talking to him. So I remember um, talking about some traumas from my life and... And he was just so understanding and and would talk to me about it and you know try to help me work through it and get over it and just very empathetic. Oh, he was very sweet, um, very funny, um, very compassionate, very caring. We had talked every day, all day, for about a month. Yeah. Maybe, maybe a little over. Something else our listeners might find familiar from season one is this idea of whisking your new romantic partner away on a weekend or a quick trip early on in the relationship. Jim and Kristen went on a few weekends away in the early days of dating. Here's the story of one of those. I picked him up from... Uh, a parking lot he had his bag with him and we just took off for the night or the weekend maybe and uh, we went to the river which is a, in near Tahlequah and we sat there and talked and 
I think that was where we kissed and where he uh, talked about the 51% um, where he believes that the man is, you know, it's like, it's not exactly equal in a relationship. He was explaining that the man has more of a responsibility to how the finances and how everything goes, because whenever everything falls apart, everyone looks at the man like, oh, it's his fault or whatever. So he was really trying to sell that he was the 51% type. In fact, Kara's first date was a trip to Branson. And if you live anywhere within five hours of driving time to Branson, Missouri, and you haven't been, it's time to fix that. Because Branson is like Vegas, but if you're a fundamentalist Christian, and it caters to an average age of 55. But there is a very fun amusement park there called Silver Dollar City, which is a frontier-themed park that has great roller coasters. Our first date was out of state. Our first date, we go all the way to Missouri. Um, um, I picked him up in his driveway of his big, beautiful home that was down the street from me. Um, He had, and he owned it, well... He said he owned it. Um, it was a big two-story home with um, several bed- bedrooms, several bathrooms. Um, it was big and impressive for a for a single man to have, you know, and it was really clean. Um, so our first date, we go all the way to Missouri, where he starts to already cross kind of boundaries with me that first night. Um, he, he definitely was not we we got a room with two we got the same room and I was I was trying to be like I don't I'm not gonna sleep with you dude I got a five date rule and um but you know I wanted to get to know him so I was like let's get a room with two beds and so we got a room with two beds and um he didn't respect me on my my bed boundary at all so um he definitely, uh, we had sex that first night with me definitely not saying yes, but I did not consider that like unconsensual. I just felt it me saying yes, because I didn't want to deal with the fallout of saying no. And now looking back, I think I was already scared of him kind of thing. The next day we go have a wonderful time at Silver Dollar City. Um, he is... He's saying things like, he's like, look how these, these people are looking at us. They think we're married. They think we're, they think we're an old married couple already. And, and he was really trying to put that in my head. Like, look what a great couple we make. Um, and he was also being gross touchy too. Like just, I couldn't go anywhere without him having his hands on my butt or my boobs or just something and it was just kind of like you know and he tried to play it off like he was just like kidding and you know for a lot of those times I was strapped in in a on a roller coaster with something over me that was fun um we rode rides until I was sick that day um and then the first he actually took my I'll never one thing that sticks out to me when we were at Silver Dollar City there was this cow, a, a, a wooden cow that you could go pretend milk and it had like these little fake cow titties. And so he said, go milk that cow. And I was like, no, I'm not going to go milk that cow. And he took my phone from me and he said, go milk the cow. And so like 
you know, I grew up with a big sister and like cousins that teased me. So I, it, it was making me laugh and I, I didn't, I don't mind people teasing me. And, and but he, looking back, he was, it was the first time he took my phone from me and I, and I was forced to do something to get my phone back kind of thing. And that happened later on, but it was a lot more serious. When Jim was together with his partners, he wasn't just listening to their stories and learning about them. He was also sharing interesting stories about his own life and experiences. And here are some of the examples that he gave some of the survivors. Like, he was a pilot. Um, He actually had passed the bar exam, but didn't become an attorney. Um, Or no, he got it. I'm sorry. He got his law degree, but never took the bar exam. One of the, I, I can't remember. There was some specific reason why his sister was the attorney and he wasn't. Um, and then he later would tell me that he was also a mortician. Um, his, de- his degree was in mortuary science. Um, and so I was kind of impressed with all of his abilities. Like the fact that he was also an a pilot I was thinking you know they don't let just anyone be pilots right I don't know I think I was wrong on that but um (laughs) and then he was he had a baby with a country singer Sarah Evans um who's this famous country singer and um he had friends that were country singers and I was I was very impressed by that Another interesting thing that the women who've been with Jim discussed was his beautiful and enigmatic personal assistant, Vicki Brochan. Jim hired Vicki to work in one of his businesses, and she had thousands of connections on LinkedIn. Frequently, Vicki would post on LinkedIn and Facebook about going for flights with Jim in his plane, and he even bought her a Chihuahua and a red Corvette. She would say how fun it was to watch a football game together with him over the weekend or thanks for the plane ride or, you know, thanks for the new bed or some, you know, like it was really so great to be his boyfriend. Vicky thought he was so great. Looking back, he had like, he was getting all these, he had this assistant that was working for him, Vicky Brochan, that was doing all this work for my pumpkins and getting all of these um, fans for my pumpkin page, which I didn't really... It, funny enough, I'm not big into like having a lot of like fans. I don't have time to be carving a lot of pumpkins in October. Like it's not like something that I do because I want fans, you know. I mean, he wanted the fans for me. And so he all of a sudden like my my Pinterest page and I'm like, who uses Pinterest? But he he's got like thousands of followers on my Pinterest page. My Facebook page has thousands of followers all because Vicky Brochan, his assistant, is really helping me out. And I was like, well, this is great, you know. Um, she's, she's at least awesome. Um, and then he, he, his, his business savvy impressed me. Like, he was always making deals. Like, he was buying semis full of stuff and, like, and making millions of dollars at once. And I, it was just fascinating to me, you know. And as a single mother, I, sure, I'm what a what a cheap ass I was. But I'm just like, dude, you're like a millionaire. And this is really weird that you're even hanging out with me. You know, I make 13 bucks an hour, you know. 
So we know that one of the attractions to Jim was his exotic lifestyle, his money, and his business savvy. Heather, who you heard from a bit ago, was one of the women who went on to marry Jim. We know from episode one with Ember that marriage was one of Jim's goals from the very early on. He always wanted to be married and often pushed his partners towards marriage very quickly. Heather and Jim were together for a mere four months before they got married in Hot Springs, Arkansas. So we, like I said, we're our first date. This was probably like July 4th or 5th. We got married. I, I know I'm terrible, but I've kind of blocked it out. I want to say October 11th of that same year. <laughs> and there was so much that happened in that amount of time. You might remember from a previous clip that Heather had just recently divorced her ex-husband of 20 years, only five months prior to marrying Jim. She realized that one of the things she really liked about being married was being a wife and having someone to take care of. So the fast marriage actually appealed to her in a way. So he started kind of priming me in September. Um, he was sending me pictures of wedding rings saying like, which one would you prefer? And things like that. And then he just suggested that we go to Arkansas after the, is it the Oklahoma State Fair was in Tulsa? So he had this plan to go to the Oklahoma State Fair, and then he wanted me to come down there and go to Tulsa with him, or to, excuse me, Hot Springs, and Elope, which at that time, I'm like, yeah, of course. So we had arranged with a wedding planner in Hot Springs. Uh, I'd found them before we went down there, planned the dates, and they did all of the photography. They officiated the ceremony. They had the ceremony locations so it was this absolutely, it was a beautiful trail, um, tree-lined, and it was just the three of us. Um, I, I thought at the time he seemed very into it. Um, looking back, it almost like it was a burden that we had to stop and do this. Um, but he never, you know, he took the pictures, he smiled, he told me he loved me, and I don't know. I. It wasn't this big, beautiful, grandiose wedding that women dream of, but it was pretty intimate, and I didn't have on a wedding dress. I had on just a regular dress that I normally would wear, so it was nothing fancy. Um, He had not bought me a ring. We went to Walmart and got a ring, a fake ring, um, to use for the ceremony, and then he was going to buy something when we got back to Iowa, which he never did. During the four months that Heather and Jim were dating, they started to experiment with more of what she would call the S&M or like Fifty Shades of Grey types of sexual behaviors. To her, at the time, it was exciting and new. And everything just escalated. It started so innocent and so playfully fun and different for me. And then it just, there was, like in the beginning, hot wax. And then you, you know, kind of peel it off with a sharp knife. So a thing that we used to do that I absolutely loved was he would hit me in the butt with a belt, a leather belt. And it was weird because he would lay on his side. I would lay right up to him. So our faces were right at each other, like eye to eye. And he'd tell me, pick a number. And I'd be like, okay. So if I picked a three, that would be like a, you know, just a little swat. If I picked a 10, that was like a whap. And it was, it was kind of like this 
And he got off on my reaction to the severity of it. These kinds of behavior were part of what Heather loved about Jim. He was exciting and unpredictable after coming from a marriage where she felt she had to always make decisions and run the household. She found it refreshing and thrilling to enter into a new phase of life and try new things in the bedroom. The thing about Jim is that he often appears spontaneous and charming at first, but his particular brand of abuse is gradual demoralization, and it causes you to call into question your very essence as a person. Abuse is so confusing to the victim because at so many parts in the relationship you can feel so good. You can feel so much love for this person that is hurting you. But we can draw a distinction between someone who hurts their partner, gets therapy, and works hard to change, versus a person who has a method, an intention, and continues to escalate their violence over and over and over again. He is a creature of habit. And if you, he made the comment to me one time, he's like, all you bitches are the same. All I have to do is do the same thing from day one. So that's like when Marcy and him first split up and I was trying to get to Marcy to make her understand. It was like, I said, I bet you got pictures of rings. I wonder if they're the same rings I got. I wonder if you did this. We've all been to this damn tree, this frog rock, whatever the fuck that is. We've all been on Boston Pool Road. We've, you know, everybody up here has been to Omaha. Everybody up here has done this. We've all cruised the same back road. And I'm trying to ask Marcy, did you look at this house? You know, what'd you think of it? You know, he approaches every one of us systematically. I was completely done with him. I'm not, I'm not going to be the kind of girl that goes back. Um, unfortunately, I can now empathize with why women do go back to their abusers. A few days later, his apologies really started, and I, and I didn't want to be back with him. I didn't, I, and I knew I didn't want to be back with him, but I also wanted to not be wrong about him either, in a way. Like, I just, I wanted him to be sorry. I wanted to hear how sorry he was. Like, who, who the hell am I? How self-righteous of me to be like, you're gonna say you're sorry, you know? And he also, you didn't want to be like the others. You wanted to, you wanted to be his unicorn. Um, but I, I went on a third weekend with him. Third weekend, we we drove around Boston Pool Road and he ended up, stop, we stopped, he put a gun in, to my head. Next week on Panic Button, We'll hear how things in Jim's relationship started to shift and that visceral fear that hits you when you realize you're out in the middle of nowhere, alone, in a car, with someone who's twice your size who wants to hurt you. You can find links to pictures, documents, and all our sources in the show notes of this episode. These cases serve as a reminder of the devastating consequences of domestic violence and the importance of seeking help if you or someone you know is a victim. If you are in immediate danger, please call 911 or your local emergency number. For confidential support and resources, you can reach out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. Thank you for listening to Panic Button, Operation Wildfire, and for joining us in shedding light on the importance of ending domestic violence for good. I'm Colleen McCarty. And I'm Leslie Briggs. Panic Button is a production of Oklahoma Appleseed Center for Law and Justice. We're recorded at Bison and Bean Studios in Tulsa, Oklahoma. 
Our theme music is by Guillaume. Additional editing is provided by The Wave Podcasting. Our music supervisor is Rusty Rowe. Special thanks to our interns, Kat and Allison. To learn more about Oklahoma Appleseed or donate to keep our mission of fighting for the rights and opportunities of every Oklahoman a reality, go to okappleseed.org.